той день, коли закінчиться війна. І хлопці змучені повернуться додому. Welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. I'm Dmitry Alperovich, Chairman of Sovereign Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. And I'm back today with my good old friend, Michael Kaufman, Research Program Director in the Russia Studies Program at the Center for Naval Analysis, and also now uh, a new host of his own podcast, The Russia Contingency, uh, that is available on One Rocks. Uh, great name, Mike. Love it. Yeah, thanks. I wonder where I, wonder where I got the idea for that title. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Mike, it's been uh, a little while since we last talked. A lot has happened. Her song has uh, now been retaken the city uh, by the Ukrainian forces. Now you have the river being the natural uh, defensive fortification for Russia. Um, a lot of the battles um, continuing uh, in the Donbass area. Where do you see things right now from your perspective? Well, uh, I think a lot of the action is around Bakhmut and Russian efforts to advance and develop the city, particularly south of it, and uh, further northeast in Luhansk along the Svatova Krimina line with Ukrainian efforts to try to advance, uh, particularly south of Svatova, and putting pressure on Russian positions there. And actually both sides, uh, both Russia and Ukraine, have made gains, although they're very incremental. I think that right now we're again in a sort of transitional phase in the war, if, if all analogies aren't perfect, but this this is to me resembling a little bit what we saw in August, where the Russian military is pursuing largely a defensive strategy, entrenching, literally building echelon lines of defense all around Kherson, Luhansk, and Donetsk, and in Zaporizhia. They are clearly looking to consolidate and pursue a more defensive strategy to try to reconstitute forces over the course of the winter to see if they can restore offensive potential in the spring. The Ukrainian military uh, seems focused on making sure that the Russian armed forces cannot do this, maintaining pressure over the course of the winter, trying to take advantage of the fact that they are operating under better conditions, right? They're better equipped, they're better supplied, they have interior lines of communication, although both sides are very hampered by the winter. Like, let's not... Uh, let's not paint the picture that uh, the winter doesn't negatively affect Ukrainian forces. It does. But I think Ukraine is very motivated in making sure that the Russian military doesn't get a break, can't reconstitute itself coming out of the winter. And so the Ukraine retains the initiative uh, further on into 2023. These are the kind of rough outlines of the two strategies. And uh, you had Putin come out this week saying that about half the mobilized forces have now been deployed in some capacity um, in Ukraine, uh, about 150,000 of them, I believe. So uh, what, do you th- what, what difference do you think those people are making right now? Yeah, yeah the number is probably high, but it's clear to me that they probably deployed north of 80,000 somewhere um, uh, in Ukraine. I think that mobilization definitely has made a difference. At, at first, it, it looked terribly organized and sort of, what many folks expected, but uh, if you recall from the very beginning, I was sort of cautioning that we need to be very careful about mobilization. Uh, it's not a joke, and it's not predestined for failure. Quantity is not deterministic, but it does matter. And mobilized personnel stabilize the Russian lines, which is what they sought for them to do. You could see that after deploying them in Luhansk, 
Ukrainian gains have been very incremental, and mobilized personnel allowed the Russian military to conduct an effective withdrawal from Kherson, and they extracted their forces and their equipment, right? So it did make a difference. What they can make of it down the line, to me, is a question that is better assessed around February. This mobilization would need at least three, four months to show whether the Russian military can refill manning tables, replenish units that have had high levels of casualties, and or create new units. And so the jury's still out on what they can make of it. Right? You cannot judge a mobilization process a month or two in. Some of these things really take maybe around four months to get a sense of uh, what the Russian military can do with mobilized personnel. But they're going to have some challenges of their own. I mean, they can't keep mobilized personnel in the field forever either. So they're probably going to create some sort of rotation where they demobilize people they mobilized initially, have a new wave of mobilization. I think mobilization is going to go in waves. I think what's happened since they enacted mobilization is that they had a hard time processing all these people, right? They don't have housing for them. They don't have equipment. They, the, the training system wasn't there to take all these people in. And a lot of the force had already gotten used up in the war. Then they had to pause it because they delayed the biannual draft, but then they had to process 120,000 conscripts, right, in the draft as well. And so they made it look like mobilization has now been stopped, but really mobilization is on pause while I think they, they sort out the conscript situation. And then there's a good chance when we when later on in the winter, they'll announce another wave of mobilization, maybe smaller. Like maybe they'll start doing like essentially learning from the experience iteratively, uh, probably going with smaller waves. But nonetheless, I think mobilization is going to keep rolling. We should point out that Putin today uh, or not today, but this week uh, proclaimed that there's absolutely no need for any future mobilizations, at least at the present time. So uh, which is probably an indication yeah, that one very, is coming. That's right? a very trustworthy source. It's yes, <laughs> a very exactly. trustworthy source. <laughs> exactly. Uh, now, Mike, what do you make um, of the uh, sporadic news coming out that there is this ongoing fighting happening on the Kinsburn Spit, this really narrow piece of land that is really controlled by artillery um, uh, from the Russian side and, and is, doesn't seem like it's a defensible piece of ground? Um, any, anything um, to the reports that there's attempts at Ukrainian counteroffensives there? I don't see it as very meaningful, to be honest. That could be a blind spot for me, but it is exactly as you described it. I think that that small bit of terrain is low-hanging fruit, but I can't see any kind of uh, uh, beachhead that could be established there for Ukrainian forces and a meaningful advance from it. It's actually further away from the ground lines of communication to Crimea than the current Ukrainian positions across the river in Kherson. All right, so the folks that kind of picture that somehow HIMARS is going to be sailed across uh, the bay and into the spin, to this very tiny, narrow piece of territory that's flat and open with absolutely nowhere to place or hide anything, and then it's going to be better positioned uh, for strikes in Kherson, it, it isn't. All right. So, and so, so the one, the one um, argument I've heard for why this... Uh, tiny piece of land matters is that in some ways it controls the access to the Black Sea, right? The Dnipro River goes through it. So anyone that controls it can prevent ships from um, traversing the Dnipro and, and going into the sea. Um, any, anything to that from your perspective? 
Okay, it does, but the entire length of it actually, to some extent, controls. I guess the point is that it it, it controls access to the main river that runs up to Mikolaya, right? That is a fair point. I could see that um, as, as an argument for its significance. But, you know, I, I actually think that you... If you look on the map, you can see that you would have to take uh, this, not just uh, the small bit of it, the part that's considered to be Mikolaevo Bliss, but you'd have to take all of it to ensure some sort of security. And at the end of the day, I don't think it uh, dramatically changes the picture. So, and there's another point. Are there actual Russian positions on the spit? Because I haven't seen any satellite footage to suggest there are significant Russian positions on that piece of terrain right now interdicting I mean, the it, flow of maritime traffic. It's basically a sandbar, and yeah. you know it's really, really hard to do anything there uh, from a sort of defensive fortification perspective. Yeah, that's what I think. Uh, and there are similar such situations when you see a very marshy terrain and what are de facto islands along the Dnieper River uh, in Kherson, right? Right right around the, the uh, city of Kherson. And uh, you'll, you'll probably see special forces raids, right? You'll have moments where there's artillery skirmishes, there's duels, there are special forces raids where people cross the river and they hoist a flag or something else, you know, up on the tower. And, and folks might be prone to looking at it and say, well, Ukrainians now have crossed the river. They have a bridgehead, but that's not what's happening. What's happening is you have raiding, you have um, uh, operations whose job is to give the image of sustained momentum. But I, I think it's actually rather unlikely that Ukraine intends to conduct a uh, riverine operation to cross the Dnieper there and attack your son. They, they don't have to, right? They can conduct an offensive operation east of the river into Zaporizhia and... You know, we know from a lot of reporting going back to the summer that that was one of their plans. Speaking of raids, um, uh, Institute uh, for Study of War has published some uh, information in the last week or so <clears throat> that the Ukrainians may have attempted um, uh, a raid on the other side of the river near the Kahovka Dam. And, and the Kahovka Dam is interesting because it's it's probably the last um uh, structure across the river that is still somewhat standing, right? The Russians blew up the Antonovsky Bridge when they uh, crossed from Kherson mm-hmm. to the other side. Um, but that fortification, not fortification, but that structure still exists. And theoretically, at least, you could move something across it. Um, not clear that you can move heavy um, uh, heavy weapons um, um, and the like, but maybe, maybe light troops and, and so forth. Um, do you think that that has any potential for any sort of counteroffensive from the Ukrainian side across the river? Nope. And I'll tell you why. Because uh, Russians blew the actual bridge part of the dam, right? And uh, the dam is intact, although slightly damaged. But it's also quite clear that if there's a major Ukrainian operation to try to cross it, they could blow the dam itself. And they just flood everything south of it, right? Uh, so I don't, I don't see it, and I think the risk for Ukrainian forces would be rather high. And again, I, I like, 
I'm aware that this could be a blind spot for me, but I'm, I don't understand why Ukraine would have to undertake such a high-risk operation. And if it was to do so, I think it would only be in tandem with a much larger operation east of the river. Because otherwise, Russian forces have echelon defenses, right, some distance from the coastline, probably out of range of Ukrainian artillery, okay, and layered them. So they are prepared to receive an offensive operation that requires Ukrainian force to cross the river where the Russian military is heavily advantaged, to put it mildly. Okay. Especially since a lot of the terrain on the on on you know right at right at the at, at the river's edge is going to be marshy and difficult to traverse and what have you. So I fail to see any reason why the Ukrainian military would, would try to conduct this kind of operation as opposed to a much more logical operation east of the river that would likely attain uh, those objectives without the incredibly high risk of trying to cross the river in force. Um, special forces radar are a separate, separate category. You know, what's possible for special forces and a small unit to do at night is not the same thing that's possible for five brigades during the day. You know, I know that's kind of a banal and obvious point, but I just want to make it. And, you know, but for the special forces raid and putting up a flag at some tower isn't exactly a major operation that has now secured a bridgehead. Right. The reason I'm pushing on these points is that we know that Zelensky um, is very much interested in trying to get back um, to Mariupol, kind of cut across um, Russian lines of commu- uh, ground lines of communication. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to explore with you what are the opportunities for the Ukrainians to do that. So if uh, the Kinsburn, uh, Kinsburn spit is not an option, if Kohovka Dam is not an option, then what is the likelihood that they will go uh, from the north, from Zaporizhia, and cut across to Takmak, Melitopol, and then eventually Mariupol in any foreseeable future? I mean, if you're asking me, I'd say the likelihood is high. Ukraine wants to liberate the south. The most logical way to do that is an operation in Zaporizhia. So to me, the likelihood that we're going to see an operation like that at some point in the future is very high. Yeah. But um, the Russians are clearly preparing for that, right? And they're building defensive lines to try to stop them. Yeah, that happened since the summer. And that's why, you know, I'll, the jury is still out on how how this war is going to go in terms of whether whether it's going to be a lot like your son, which is grinding attritional battles, uh, slow incremental gains, and a fight when one side presses the other side. Uh, or will Ukraine be able to find major weaknesses in the Russian lines to break through and engage in manure warfare? I think my, my current kind of baseline is going to be a lot more like Kherson, from what I've seen. But, but in Kherson, the Ukrainians had a huge advantage in that they were able to restrict resupplies across the river by targeting the bridges, right? Um, that You don't necessarily have that advantage um, on, on the eastern side of the river. Absolutely. Kyrgyzstan was actually the most advantageous battle they were they were going to find in across the board because the Russian military had no prospects for counterattack. So the operation itself was low risk and uh, Ukrainian forces were on the winning uh, on the winning side of an of an uh, artillery and attritional change. And they could steadily eat away at the Russian ability to sustain their position there without that much risk to themselves. Right. There was no flank where the Russian military could come around or try to regain the initiative uh, on a part of that front. And they were trying to, they were trying to, the Russian military was trying to defend a very large frontage space 
as you said, with eight ferries and one dam serving as a bridge and one kind of pontoon bridge that they were constantly trying to repair as Ukrainians were striking. That said, you know, it, it also offers an interesting retrospective on the impact of HIMARS as well, which may have been a bit overstated, because if the Russian military was able to effectively withdraw the bulk of their forces and equipment in a fairly short amount of time, within several weeks, right, uh, along ground lines of communication that were supposedly being heavily interdicted on a regular basis by HIMARS strikes, I have questions. You know, I, I'm intellectually, like, naturally drawn to input-output problems. So the outputs of what happened in Kherson don't match some of the alleged inputs. Well, the one thing that is very clear um, that we, of course, knew, but um, the, the, these actions have reinforced is that it's really, really hard to destroy bridges, right? I mean, um, these bridges ultimately got destroyed not because of HIMARS strikes, but because the Russians blew them up um, when they were departing um, and totally That's put right. them out of commissions. But HIMARS, while severely damaging them through probably hundreds of strikes over the course of many months, did not take them fully out of commission. Over four months. I know some people are of the mind that, you know, Ukrainian military just let the Russian military go. Now, while it's true, I think the Ukrainian forces didn't want to have a bloody fight for Kherson and level the city. That's fair. But no, I, I don't think Ukrainian forces let the Russian military just go in that sense. And yes, they were trying to interdict the those ground lines of communication for over four months. And, you know, what this goes to is uh, that... HIMARS is very effective, but it's not a silver bullet. Folks need to get out of silver bullet mentality in terms of capability, from my point of view. And secondarily, you know, as I, as I used to say boringly over the course of the summer, most capabilities uh, maximize their effects when they're first introduced on the battlefield at scale. Okay, Then their efficacy remains, but it levels off because your, your opponents begin adapting and they begin adjusting. Right, And you can see that the Russian military reorganized logistics and supply and moved them out of range. They hardened command points so that they weren't uh, as reachable and changed their, their uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures. You haven't had, like, major HIMARS strikes killing Russian officers and leadership of, of entire units. And I suspect, this is one hypothesis, that they, begin, that they begin creating a lot of decoys, which is why you still, you know, you still have HIMARS strikes, but in the last two months you've seen pretty, pretty few spectacular attacks like you had when HIMARS was first introduced at the end of June. Right. And, you know, my, my, basically the, the reason I'm telling the story is a bit of a retrospective because I thought that HIMARS was significant, but this was always like an overly rotten narrative about its net effect. And that actually, to me, what's most significant in the war now is like air defense and artillery, like tube artillery and MLRS ammunition are, are more driving factors than any one specific capability. Well, be prepared to receive some hate mail from Lockheed. Um, so let, let's talk about the Donbass. Um, one thing that I find so interesting is that when you look at some of the places where the fighting is taking place, like, for example, this week, uh, Ukrainians uh, posted some videos of what looks like maybe white phosphorus bombing campaign near Advievka. And some of those places we've been hearing about, not just throughout this war, but since 2014, right? You've, been, you've had fighting in, in these trenches going on literally for eight years, and they may be one of the most fortified um, battlefield um, uh, places on the planet. Um, and I'm curious, from either side's perspective, 
given that the Russians, fa- frankly, have utterly failed in their attempts to take Bakhmut since like June, um, and um, you know you still have fighting going on around the Donetsk city, right? Uh, not not far from it that the Russians took in 2014. Um, are those lines so entrenched now on both sides that it's going to be very difficult for either side to make progress? Uh, around Donetsk city, definitely. Uh, around Bakhmut, uh, I would say that it's it's basically a World War One style battle with uh, huge amounts of artillery being used and um, uh, a lot of sort of uh, attacks by smaller tactical groups. I think that uh, progress in Donetsk for either side is likely going to be very incremental. And the Russian military has thrown a lot of manpower and a lot of Wagner forces at Bakhmut since the summer. I think part of the reason for that is even though they've elected a defensive strategy, it doesn't look like now, given, given the situation we can see, it doesn't look like Surovikin entirely got his way. It looks like he got authorization to withdraw from Kherson, consolidate, but the Russian leadership still wants Donetsk, right? That's the they want Donbass, they want Donetsk. The cut line, I think they they have envisioned is Luhansk and Donetsk Oblast. Since Izum and Kharkiv are gone, the only logical Russian plan now is to fight for Bakhmut as the main gateway city to get to Slavansk and Kramatorsk in the north, and to advance in the south, right? And that is why they had the Naval Infantry Brigade trying to assault Pavlivka to set themselves up to get to Vuglidar, which is a higher ground position, and trying to push through the southern part of, of uh, Donetsk Oblast from the city itself. This is kind of my perception of the plan. Uh, but this is very problematic because they don't really have the offensive potential to sustain us. I think they have major constraints in terms of artillery ammunition, right? We're now towards the end of the year, and they've used quite a bit over the summer to make up for their deficit in manpower. And even though they fixed the quantitative manpower problem to an extent, their artillery problem is not going to really start biting, I think, the Russian military. Uh, the other part of Bakhmut, I'll just be honest, I'm beginning to see very much a sort of sunk cost fallacy rationale that this Bakhmut is being fought over because it has been fought over and because the Russian military has tried so hard to get it and Wagner spent so many lives trying to get it, they now are fighting over it because they've sunk so many costs into it since, uh, since July. Mike, you mentioned World War One, which I think is such an apt analogy. You've got trenches, you've got just miserable conditions on both sides. Plenty of videos coming out on Telegram of both Russian and Ukrainian soldiers just soaked wet, miserable, hungry, uh, cold, and so forth. Um, very much reminds you of the Western Front um, in World War One. But of course, the one thing that you had relatively little for most of the war in World War One is armored mobility um, uh, to enable the breakthrough. Through those trench lines, the tanks appeared only towards the end of the war and were fairly basic. Um, the Ukrainians are um, demanding tanks. Um, well, demanding is the wrong word, but asking strongly f- um, to receive tanks. Um, I think in part because um, obviously they have some Soviet-era um, tanks, but um, um, I think there are concerns about um, ammo um, supplies for those tanks and, and the barrels for those tanks. So they want to move to Western tanks, tank models. Um, there's concerns about giving them M1 Abrams tanks because they're very difficult to operate, heavy and so forth. But what is your view on the need for tanks for Ukraine? And could that enable some sort of breakthroughs on these entrenched um, defensive lines? Oh, that's a thorny question. So um, 
Let me dodge a part of that matrix because I don't have a specific view on need of tanks for Ukraine. I'll put this right. I I can understand why they're asking for them. I think that maybe medium to long term that makes sense. Uh, I probably don't see this as a leading priority right now. I think the priority for Ukraine is to resolve the air defense issue, particularly uh, air defense systems and air defense ammunition. And secondarily, uh, the question of ammunition and uh, maybe different types of long-range precision fires. To me, tanks are kind of uh, maybe a secondary or tertiary priority. That's just my perception of it. Um, but, you know, it's it's hard to say because if the Ukrainian strategy is to create new operational level formations, right, to build up brigades and, and create several corps, they need equipment and they need to get from somewhere. And yes, they captured a lot of Russian equipment that they're probably uh, using for parts and what have you, but it doesn't mean that they have enough gear to actually create uh, these units. On mobility... And, and and using armor. So what I'll say is that this war thus far has shown that, you know, maneuver is possible where attrition has significantly degraded the opponent, okay? Where the defensive side is actually has a decent density of forces to hold the terrain, they're entrenched. They have echelon lines so they can shift from positional defense to maneuver defense back to positional defense. Maneuver warfare has not been very successful. Okay, Part of the reason for that is, you know, a lot of folks, when they have expectation of maneuver warfare, the sort of successes that militaries like the United States can achieve, they forget that that's typically done in an environment where the U.S. Air Force has complete air superiority and is providing fires across the entire length of the battle space. Okay? And... You know, U.S. has phenomenal logistics. There's fire support from the Navy and the Air Force. And then maneuver warfare looks very possible, right? Um, but, but and by the way, that was one of the World War II lessons, right, from the German Blitzkrieg, is that their Air Force was really key to their advances. Yeah, air power helps. Um, uh, being in methamphetamines for several days in a row also helped Germans, but that's a separate issue. Um, <laughs> so suffice it to say that I can see a future where, where the Ukrainian military can effectively conduct sort of combined arms operations. Kharkiv showed a bit of that. But, you know, the success in Kharkiv had a lot to do with the fact of how thinly it was defended and the challenges of Russian forces and lines there. You can see the same thing in Kherson for a reason. Um, and so the question is, are either of those now useful guides for what the future will bring and what another offensive might look like? I'm I'm of the mind that probably Ukraine will... will We'll be able to continue making gains, but you're not likely to see as, as uh, big a breakthroughs or, or large territory um, uh, uh, changing hands. But who knows? I could be wrong on that. That's just sort of the sort of initial baseline going into the winter. And the, my sense is that what happens in the next three months will very much set expectations for the spring and summer in this war. Right. The picture will become much clearer towards the end of February. Right now, it's very difficult to say what, you know, what this war looks like well into 2023. But it's clear from my point of view that – sorry, go ahead. It, it, it sounds like um, from what we've just been talking about that if there's going to be a major breakthrough from the Ukrainian side, it's much more likely to happen in Zaporizhia than in the Donbass because the fortifications in Donbass are really um, uh, well entrenched, right? 
Well, yeah, but don't forget about Luhansk, right? There, you see the Russian military building, pretty massive uh, trench works in Luhansk. But I think both in Zaporizhia and in Luhansk, there are opportunities for Ukraine. It's just a question of what they elect to do. Uh, do they go for one or both? Yeah, I personally have no idea, so I can't speculate. But just to say that I see I see prospects in both areas, and uh, the battle in Bakhmut is also a, is also a grinding fight that could play to Ukraine's advantage, right? If they basically absorb a lot of Russia's offensive potential right now, and the outcome's pretty indeterminate, or even Russian forces take Bakhmut. Let's say let's take a, a pessimistic view for a second. Let's say they take Bakhmut. And yes, it's a it's a significant gain, but can they then advance to Slavyansk and Kramatorsk from Bakhmut? Big question marks. Because one of the big challenges I think they have is they're very, very fires dependent. And they would need to resolve a lot of issues in availability of munitions in order to restore offensive potential in the spring. That's why they turned to North Korea. We know we know months ago now. Remember we were discussing those rumors, I think all the way back in the summer? Mm-hmm. Well, it turned out that probably there was some truth to those rumors. And they may have been eyeing their artillery situation towards end of the year. Like obviously, they still have artillery ammunition. You can tell by the rate of fire. Uh, well, and and they're the producing battle. it too, although probably not at the rate that they're consuming. No, I don't think anyone anyone can produce ammunition at the rates being consumed. I just want to be clear: this is a this is a medium to long term problem on the western side as well. Ukraine's consumption of artillery ammunition looks maybe at 90 to 120,000 rounds per month. And uh, I, I don't see people producing that, meaning as much as production is being ramped up right now, you know, there's a reason why this stuff is coming out of U.S. stocks, right? If the U.S. could make anything like this, then it wouldn't be draining stocks and, yeah. and available reserves. We should say that the Pentagon procurement officer is saying in recent days that <clears throat> uh, they're getting new authorization from Congress to build new capacity and they're going to potentially triple it in the next couple of years. Obviously, nothing is going to happen immediately, but um, it's, uh, it's going to come at some point. That's, that's on the back end of the next five years. Okay, So the challenge, the challenge that folks need to appreciate is, yes, it'll make a real difference if this war lasts another three years. Okay? In year and then in 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 year four and five, in the near term, I think from what I saw, they can increase production by about forty percent, but that's going to take them from something like fourteen thousand artillery rounds to twenty thousand artillery rounds, which is a good difference, but it's not it's not deterministic. And in, in, that, in that's about a potentially a couple of days worth of consumption, right? Um, uh, on the Ukrainian side, yeah, yeah, it's not, it's not going to make, it's not going to make that much of a difference. So this, is, this is a basically, uh, this is an issue to really think about for 2023. And uh, yes, production will increase, but like folks really need to appreciate that uh, increasing production by doubling it or tripling it three, four years ago from now doesn't answer the question of what happens in the in the coming year. You know, when people discuss. Potentials for um, where this war ends. Um, usually you hear kind of two options being talked about, that <clears throat> it ends at the February 24 lines or it ends at the 2014 lines and Ukraine takes everything back. 
you know, Luhansk, Donetsk, and, and Crimea <clears throat> that Russia grabbed in, in 2014. I heard you make a really interesting point recently that um, the more likely scenario is actually a third option, which is um, that it ends somewhere different, right? That the there's nothing magical about the February 24 lines, for example, that if there's going to be a ceasefire or even a permanent resolution, um, you could have Ukrainian gains, you could have Russian gains, but the return to those exact lines um, that we had on February 24th is, uh, is, is not sort of uh, a, a foregone conclusion. Is that right? Yeah, I think, I think the one place that's definitely not going to end is February 24 lines, right? Because uh, that doesn't represent a Ukrainian definition of victory at this stage. There's nothing natural about those lines where the war started, right? And by the and, way, those lines yeah, were constantly moving because you had war for eight years, right? So you had Russian yeah. progress, Ukrainian progress. So they were not static lines. Well, they didn't represent either a geographic or political boundary that was meaningful in any sense. And uh, can you imagine in practice a situation where Ukraine is able to inflict sufficient military defeat on Russian forces? Can retake the South, right? can retake large parts of the of the east and then stops at an imaginary line on a map and then Ukrainian political leadership Zelensky has to turn to those people and say, you know, we don't need the rest of our country. We'll negotiate for it, even though we are in a position to take it. We've essentially defeated Russian forces across large parts of Ukraine. There's no way I can see that happening. It's just it's uh, it's just now that becomes a bit surreal. So this is a war that I think uh, has one of two likely outcomes. You know, either the Ukrainian military can really push the Russian military out, and if it can get near those lines or anywhere proximate to them, then it can take the rest of Donetsk and Luhansk, right? Or it cannot. These is basically uh, the scenarios. And you know, I I see uh, I see different ways this can end. But I actually kind of looking at it, I've increasingly become a pessimist on how the war ends in practice, because if it ends prematurely, right, if the people who want negotiations now have their way, then it just ensures another war, right? So all you get out of this is a continuation war, because neither side... Because no one is going to be happy, not the Russians, not the Ukrainians, right? Yeah, this war is a continuation war of the 2014 war, right? That's exactly what you get. You're basically, you're you're picturing that some kind of Minsk-like process or ceasefire is going to resolve anything, and it won't. Um, But... The folks that, you know, are naturally very optimistic that Ukraine can sort of win it all and, and you know, Russia won't won't escalate with nuclear weapons. Let's 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 imagine this outcome. It's a very possible one. But the war then ends, but it doesn't. It's up to losers to decide when the war is over. Okay? Israel decisively beat Arab states in nineteen sixty seven and then proceeded to have three year war of attrition with Egypt. Because Egypt and other countries would not concede that the war that they essentially they essentially lost the war, and then so Putin's that not led to end the war. and that that led to 1973 war, right? Then, correct, absolutely, absolutely. What did, what did the 1967 war resolve? It it, it actually uh, led to a war of attrition, and then it led to another war. So, from this point of view, and I, of course, like speaking very glibly about this history because I'm covering it in about five seconds, but point being is that there's a good chance that however this war ends will still ensure a succession of conflicts, the way you saw between Armenia and Azerbaijan, for example. And that as long as Putin's in charge, there's a good chance that one way or another he'll try to continue the war. 
And I'm not saying there isn't room for negotiations down the line, but you know what are the two main conditions you look for in negotiations? First, is stalemate on the ground, which there's not one today, right? You know, secondarily, for one or the other side to be willing to substantially revise their minimal war aims. I can't picture a Ukrainian leader basically coming out at this stage and saying that there's some part of Ukraine he's willing to concede. I just don't see that. Um, and, you know, Russian political leadership has done a really good job of severing their ability to revise their war aims because they annexed, you know, parts of Ukraine and they annexed it to a constitutional process. So I'm not, I mean, sure, folks can say that, you know, Putin can do anything, whatever he, he wants, but he's not going to. Dmitry. It's very clear yeah. he's not going to. Yeah. No, we've talked and, about this in the past that you yeah. know, once you annex it, it's really hard politically even for Putin to just say, oh, just kidding. Uh, didn't mean that. Or, uh, or a future leader. Folks assume that, oh, there's regime change in Russia and a future leader will change it. Actually, their track record on this um, uh, lends room to skepticism. A lot of times leaders continue wars they inherited. You know, Mike, talking to you now and talking to our friends at Rusi, <clears throat> one thing that's becoming very clear is that um, both from the Russian perspective and the Ukrainian perspective, um, the big challenge that they face since the beginning of this war, both sides, <clears throat> is the lack of air dominance, right, that could potentially help do a breakthrough for one side or the other. Do you see anything changing or um, uh, a change um, uh, uh, coming about through Western help um, on the Ukrainian side to help them get um, air supremacy over the battlefield and really change this dynamic. Is that possible? Mm, I I'm very skeptical on, on that score. I think I think air air denial and denying. Russia, the ability to effectively use air power is something that Ukraine was able to achieve, uh, particularly after, let's say, maybe the first week or so of the war. But it it was not a stable situation because the Russian strike campaign it, is also draining Ukraine of air defense ammunition, right? You saw Russian military just reloaded another batch of Shahed drones from, from Iran and that's a that's a shot exchange that's very favorable to Russia, right? Those things I don't know what they cost, but it's a couple thousand dollars. And yeah, twenty, twenty, thirty thousand. Yeah, yeah. That's a you know, if if they can get a stable supply of drones, they can they can create a lot of pressure on Ukrainian air defense. And then if they're able to deplete Ukrainian air defense, which you know with Western help, I think it'll happen. But that's why I'm harping on the air defense issue as a near term problem. Then, you know, then the Russian Air Force can begin looking for ways to return itself to, to the actual battlefield, right, beyond the forward line of troops. Well, the one thing um, that most people don't talk about is that there could be dual uh, reasons for this terror campaign on Ukrainian infrastructure, right, the grid infrastructure, Ukrainian cities and so forth. One is obviously to terrorize the population, try to demoralize them going into this hard winter. But another one might be to try to move Ukrainian air defenses away from the battlefield back into the cities so that you have more freedom of movement for the Russian Air Force across those uh, front lines, right? Yeah, yeah. I've been trying to set up a dilemma for Ukraine, a position where they either defend cities and, and people or they defend the front, but try to put them in a place where they don't have air defense to do both, right? And, you know, I think, I think in general we've been late to need on that one when it comes to 
sorting out the air defense situation. Again, you see these contracts for, you know, NASAM's batteries. Ukraine's going to get two units and we're going to build six more, but that's going to take time. That's not, they don't answer any questions for the next three, four months, right? That's a sort of. Yeah, I think the, the delivery dates on those new ones is November of next year. Yeah, well, exactly. Point, point, point made, uh, Ukraine has to live to November of next year. <laughs> so um, can you imagine kind of someone who's been kind of absolutely enveloped by covering this war? I, and it's been, you know, nine months plus the lead up period. I can't even imagine what November of next year looks like. But um so my, my view of it, that air defense is a priority, and yes, it's not just a, a pressure campaign, Ukrainian public. Actually, Russian leadership isn't trying to pressure the Ukrainian public. Remember, Russian leadership is cynical and only understands decision-making by elites, right? So what it's doing is it's trying to, it's trying to shape elite expectations, not so much in Ukraine, but actually in the West, to show what the material cost of supporting Ukraine will be. And to show that their strategy is essentially dragging this out, extending, extending how long the war lasts and working the material constraint side of the equation. Like, I mean, you, you and I both kind of follow Russian elites and, and leadership. They're not the kind of folks that really understand how publics think or how people think. They're very elite focused in decision making. You know, they're still working well, to with them. The, the people don't that, matter. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the people don't, don't don't make any difference, right? So to them, the question is, you know, how hard can you pressure Zelensky? They're trying to restore leverage. They lost all their leverage when they withdrew from Kiev at the end of March, right? That's when all Russian leverage over Ukrainian leadership and over Western leadership was gone. It was gone almost in an instant when they were defeated there, okay? And when this campaign, they are trying to restore this leverage. That's That's my interpretation of it. And... I don't know. I, I have no idea if it's going to work for them. Probably not. But if, if you look from a Russian standpoint, what else are they going to do? Right. That's it's. And their strategy of trying to extend the war does introduce a lot of uncertainty. Right. Because the longer the war goes on, the more difficult it is to sustain. And if they can push it into next winter. Right. What I think they're trying to show Europeans is that Europeans have found a way to muddle through to get through this winter. But that's not necessarily a sustainable process to what extent they can do it again. I think that's the Russian bet. Yeah. And, you know, it's not a bad bet. We'll see if it, how it plays out. But, you know, one of the reasons that the Europeans will make it through this winter relatively OK is because um, they were able to refill a lot of the, their gas inventories with Russian gas before it got cut off in the summer. Um, that will no mm -hmm. longer be possible next year. And um, um, they're going to have to ramp up massively LNG um, uh, sourcing to try to um, get through the next winter. But, um, but you're absolutely right on that. Mike, uh, last question for you. Um, you know, obviously, um, you, you've been a critic of the word stalemate with regards to this war. And there's not been any stalemate since this war began. Uh, it, it remains a very dynamic battlefield. What are you watching next? Where, where do you think... Um, things uh, are going to be most interesting in terms of progress on, on either side. Um, what, what's piquing sure. your interest right now? Yeah. Well, I've generally been a critic of, of trying to prejudge things. And, you know, there's, there's a kind of biased tendency where whatever phase of the war you're in, that's what you think is going to keep happening. That's how, that's how the war is going to progress. So if Ukraine's making gains, right, if one side's making gains, you sort of imagine, wow, this war is heading rapidly towards victory. And that's not. We saw Ukraine momentum really slow down. 
uh, in October. And if you're sort of in a phase without much in the way of uh, territory, uh, trading hands or major offensives, then people assume that's naturally going towards stalemate, which it isn't either. You know, that wasn't the case in August, and I don't think that's the case now. So I think for me, I'm probably focused looking at what's going to happen around uh, the Svatovar Crimea line, what's going to happen around Bakhmut, and to see if the Ukrainian military launches an offensive later this winter, uh, like a major offensive, or if the conditions, both environmental conditions and the state of Ukrainian forces, which is a, a picture you can't see. Like, it's easier to see what's happening in the weather. I have to remind folks, very imperfect insight into the state of Ukrainian forces and to what, what they're working with, uh, to what extent they're prepared and equipped to do it. But my general impression has been that uh, they are keen not to uh, let time slip away and not to allow Russian forces to further entrench and recast it. So I think one, one way or another, even though there's no political pressure for Ukraine to show that they can make gains, they did that at Kharkiv and Kherson, I think that internally they're motivated to, to press Russian forces rather than allow the Russian military to have a reconstitution period, because it just means that everything will be costlier and everything will be harder down the line. So my well, guess is that you know, they'll try for it. And, and also, this idea that you can make progress in the winter is just so ridiculous because... Let's remember, the Russians launched this war in the winter and took a lot of ground right away, right? So you can absolutely move uh, across, uh, you know, frozen ground and roads still work in Ukraine as well. Sure, but, but let's be frank, it's hard, okay? You don't have uh, land cover, so you're, dry, you're out in the open and you're exposed to anti-tank guy and missiles and artillery, okay? The road conditions are such that... Basically, tanks can move across terrain, but the rest of the vehicles and supplies can't, so they're bound to roads. So you actually very quickly funnel down narrow ground lines of communication, okay? If you're advancing and there's no cover and you're in the open, then you can easily be hit by drones or aviation and these sort of means. Plus, uh, casualties run very high due to injury, right? So it's very easy for units to become combat ineffective because you're losing, you're losing men to sickness and injury all the time. And God forbid anybody gets wet. When it's cold, if you get wet, you're rapidly heading towards combat and effectiveness within a few days, right? And this, and there's another issue of equipment, too. You like say, well, Ukrainians are better equipped. Yes, they are, but you need a lot more. Actually, you cannot get through with one set of equipment. Because if anything happens to what you're wearing, you need another change. Otherwise, you're going to freeze. Like the, It's very cold. <laughs> this, is, this is not a very bright point. But it gets pretty cold in Ukraine in the winter. And so... These conditions affect both sides, obviously, but the side that is conducting offensive operations has a harder challenge than the side that's defending in ground warfare. Yeah, that's the reality of it. So yeah. my point being is it's not prohibitive of major offensives, but folks also have to appreciate that it, it, does, um, it does really affect uh, planning and, and, it, and it, can impose, it can impose a lot of constraints as to what extent to which an offensive will be successful. On that point, we're going to end it there. Uh, that was the one and only Mike Kaufman, his own podcast. I encourage you to listen to on War in the Rocks. It's called The Russia Contingency. Thanks a lot, Mike. Hey, Dmitry. Thanks for having me back. Great talking to you. Задає ми кіборгів героїв.
you've 